Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I'm your guest host, Dr. Ted O'Connell, and my guest today is Dr. Raj Dasgupta, who is here to talk with us about insomnia. Dr. Raj is quadruple board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. He is also an author and educator who will soon be launching his own podcast called The Dr. Raj Show, which will be all about contemporary medical topics and their intersection with popular culture. Dr. Raj completed internal medicine residency at Michigan State University, pulmonary critical care fellowship at Columbia University, St. Luke's and Roosevelt Hospital, and sleep medicine fellowship at Henry Ford Hospital. During his training, he received numerous awards, including Resident of the Year, Fellow of the Year, and the Director's Award for Research. Dr. Raj is a professor at the University of Southern California and received the Faculty Teaching Award for the last six consecutive years. He is an active clinical researcher and currently teaches USMLE Step 1, 2, and 3, as well as internal medicine board review around the world for the past 18 years. He has a book titled Medicine Morning Report, Beyond the Pearls, published by Elsevier. He appears on various media platforms and television shows such as Chasing the Cure, The Doctors, CNN, and Inside Edition. We'll put links to his websites in the show notes so you have access to all of that. Dr. Raj, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Oh, you're super welcome, Ted. I mean, it's always a treat to hang out with you, my fellow educator. And you did, you got me, you got me to talk about sleep. You know, for two seconds, I was a little resistance because that seems to be my bread and butter for quite a while, but I'm in a super fired up mood to talk about it. That's awesome. It's your bread and butter. But I think <laughs> in a lot of medical schools, it's just something that's not taught adequately. And, and even in residency training programs, not taught particularly well. So this would be a chance for everybody to, to really learn from you. And given your, your background and your passion for teaching, we talked beforehand, we're just going to start this off as kind of a case-based discussion and have you lead us through how you approach insomnia. Does that sound good? Sure. Yeah, no, no, definitely. You know, and before we do that, you know, maybe a little banter. And I wanted to say that you were mentioning how sleep seems to be, you know, in the back shelf when we talk about med schools. But I mean, just in a broader sense, you know, I think the way we approach sleep, you know, is is kind of odd. A big thing that we have that we face every day is sleep deprivation. And I think that, you know, culturally speaking, many people, and Ted got my back on this, wear sleep deprivation like a badge of courage right there on their chest. You know what I mean? Like, they're, they're proud of it because what are some of the phrases that, you know, at least at what I grew up on with things like, you know, I can sleep when I'm dead or the classic, the early bird gets the worm. And when you hear stuff like that, it's encouraging, you know, students, you know, entrepreneurs to say that, hey, don't sleep, you know, keep on pushing, pushing, pushing. And we know now that this is far from the truth. What, what do you think? Oh, you're 100% correct. And, you know, we're talking to a predominantly medical student, but also resident audience here. And, you know, that the culture in medicine, unfortunately, is one of kind of overwork and overstudying and putting sleep as a far down the line type of issue. But it's critically important to be well rested. No, definitely. And, and, and before we go jumping into insomnia, let me just say this is that, 
it's amazing that if I had to pick one of the most common topics I always get asked for any interview, including med school and just media is, should I do an all-nighter studying for my board exams or studying for my finals? And it's amazing that even though you know what the answer is going to be, the answer is, no, that sounds like a horrible idea that, you know, it still seems like a rite of passage for many people, you know, and I'm not just pointing out high schoolers or college. I even see it and hear it, people taking USMLE, people taking board exams. So there is a lot of passion going towards this episode beyond just me teaching everyone insomnia. Hopefully they'll get some broader tips from it too. Absolutely. So Raj, why don't you just dive on in and take us away with this vignette and, and the questions sure. we're going to base this so on? So I, I think a good way to start sleep is to do a clinical vignette and kind of point out how, as a sleep physician, what jumps out at me. And all these are going to also give you some board taking tips, some board pearls per se. So we have a 48-year-old woman with a 68-year history of problems going to sleep and staying to sleep. And I'm going to say, stop right there. So you can't see it, everyone who's listening, but I have things in bolded red. Why? It's because these are going to be key points. Is that, is it important to recognize if it's going to sleep or staying asleep? The answer is yes. Why? It's because when we talk about treating things like insomnia, let's say I decide to go the route of medical therapy, which I don't always do, and we're going to talk more about that, is that it does make a difference if it's sleep onset insomnia, difficulty initiating that sleep. And how is it going to make a difference? Well, if you decide to use medications per se, you want something with a quick onset, maybe with a shorter half-life. If it's difficulty staying asleep, if it's early morning awakenings, well, if you decide to use medications, well, you want something with a longer half-life. And let me just jump ahead and say, and that's tricky because you know that when you use medications that have a long half-life, you may get that fatigue and carryover during the day. But as a clinician, I want to know if it's sleep onset insomnia or sleep maintenance. And of course, anything in medicine always has an overlap of both. So, this patient does not remember having difficulty sleeping when her children were young, but has gradually experienced increasing sleep problems. These problems seem to intensify during her husband's recent hospitalization. Stop right there. So when we talk about different types of insomnia, there are going to be ones that occur secondary to life-changing events, you know, and we call that adjustment insomnia. So when we talk about husband being recently hospitalized, I mean, that's something where it's going to change her daily pattern. It's going to have problems initiating sleep at night. Why? Because of maybe having stress for many different reasons. And it seems like the husband had emergent cardiac surgery. So we have an inciting event right there. She now dreads bedtime. She's concerned about her sleeping problems and fears that sleep loss is causing her to be irritable with her husband. Could that be true? The answer is yes. So when we talk about you know sleep deprivation, which is one of the things that happens when you have insomnia, insomnia can affect every single part of the body, including the brain in the sense that it causes you to have, you know, problems with being patient. It has problems with, you know, many of the focusing issues that you could have during a job or school during the day, problems with memory, problems with cognition. So I'm not surprised it can cause her to be irritable with her husband. And the follow-up line says also affecting her immune system. So can things like insomnia and sleep deprivation affect your immune system? The answer is Yes, and there actually has been studies that show that if someone were to get a vaccination after being sleep deprived the night before, that vaccine may not work as well 
versus someone who had a good night's sleep and got the vaccine. So this is not just opinion. There actually has been evidence-based medicine showing that sleep deprivation, insomnia can affect your immune system. Because she is so concerned about getting enough sleep, she gets into bed around 8.30 p.m. and can't even fall asleep until 11.30 or midnight. Ted, what do you think about that? Is that some, some good sleep hygiene right there? That is far less than ideal sleep hygiene. <laughs> because I think it goes down to one thing. Uh, the bed is only meant for one thing, Ted. And what's that be- that was the bed meant for? Well, the way we talk about it in primary care, it's for two things. It's for sleep and sex. Oh, wow. I'm glad you brought up the other one. I thought we we're just yeah. going to go for the G-rated uh, podcast, but yeah. all right. I like that. Uh, and he's right. So she then awakens about 2.30 a.m. and then sleeps off and on until around 7.30 a.m. Sometimes she naps in the afternoon to make up for uh, sleep lost at night. Any opinions, Ted, about these naps in the afternoon this patient in the vignette's doing? Is that going to be a good thing that she's napping during the afternoon? No, it's actually a bad thing. And it's one of the first things that we try to get people to break the habit of. You know, they're tired. And so they take a nap, but then that throws off their circadian rhythms. And so trying to get them to cut out the naps and just actually be tired during the day so that when they get to bed, they sleep better is the way I approach it. I mean, are, are you are you hiding from me? Are you a, are you sleep certified, Ted, over there? Are you sure? I, I am not. I'm just going to paint this with primary care strokes <laughs> as, as you give us the details. <laughs> All right. So that is correct. You know, I mean, we could have a whole podcast about napping, everyone. But, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan of napping if you are sleep deprived, if you have certain issues like narcolepsy. But in someone with insomnia, just like, you know, Dr. O'Connell said, you don't want to nap. Why? It takes away that drive to sleep at night, you know, because of the fact that if you are someone who's, you know, having insomnia, you can't fall asleep, you want to build up that drive to sleep. And we'll talk about the details of that during our podcast today. So she takes naps in the afternoon, and we even talk about how long these naps are. That's always a good question. And you know, not to steal my own thunder, you want those naps to be around 20 minutes or so, and we'll, and we'll answer the questions why coming up. And she tries to do this to make up for lost sleep at night. She snores slightly, but does not have witness apneas or uncomfortable leg sensations. Ted, what do you think I'm going with with these uncomfortable leg sensations? Any sleep disorder or movement disorder that jumps to mind? Restless leg syndrome. Oh my God, totally. You're, you're, You're spot on. So difficulty initiating sleep, you may want to think about restless leg syndrome. And that is a big misnomer that it's a sleep disorder because you're not sleeping with restless legs, is difficulty initiating the sleep. She has borderline hypertension, a history of depression. Stop right there. Ted, is depression associated with insomnia? What is your opinion? Do you think so? Not? Well, it absolutely is. And some of the things you were talking about with her history, even before this, were making me wonder if we should be doing a depression screen on her. You know, she's had this six to eight year history, some recent life stressors, endorses that she's irritable, you know, and then if she's actually having difficulty staying asleep, that can be terminal insomnia, which you can, it can actually be kind of a red flag within depression as meaning that the depression is potentially worse than we think. So oh, yes. I would have a pretty low threshold to, to screen her for depression. Oh, 100%. You know, I would say in the sleep realm, we always call this a classic chicken and the egg. I mean, your depression can be causing insomnia. Your insomnia definitely can cause depression, then we throw the curveball at you, which is going to be medications. And let's talk about the classic one nowadays, SSRIs. So we use medications like Cetraline. 
you know, fluoxetine, peroxetine, you name it, that one of the known side effects of these are going to be insomnia. Why? Because when you talk about serotonin in itself, what type of neurotransmitter is serotonin? All my medical students listening, it's an alerting neurotransmitter. So when you inhibit its reuptake, of course, one of the side effects could be insomnia. So you have three things that could be causing, because you just can't stop this medication. So of course, in the clinical sense, usually what we like to say is, hey, if you're going to take the medication, try to take it during the day. I'm not going to say that's the magical answer for all her insomnia. These are little things you can do if it helps. So they do a physical exam and it's normal. Her BMI is 31. Of course, anytime you say elevated BMI and there's some snoring, what three words come to mind, everyone? You know what it is. It's OSA, obstructive sleep apnea. Okay. So which of the following statements is true about this patient's sleep problem? So, you know, Ted, we'll do this one together. So what about the first one? You know, that's kind of a spicy one in my opinion. They are contributing uh, to her, her diagnosis is contributing to her mildly elevated blood pressure. What, what's your take on that? And there's not one right answer here. Yeah, I mean, I would say maybe, uh, you know, the, the insomnia itself, probably make it a big maybe. If she has underlying sleep apnea, then much more likely that that, that could be contributing. But if we're talking pure insomnia, I'll defer to you, but probably not as likely. Yeah, and I have to say, I mean, you, I'm gonna make, I might give you a gold star for my best medical student right here. And that's exactly how we look at it, is that, you know, test-taking skills, you know, the writer of this question is trying to associate in broad strokes, you know, obstructive sleep apnea, definitely good data about diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease. Of course, if that turns out to be the primary diagnosis, it can contribute to it. But in this case, when we talk about insomnia, you know, people can argue that, hey, elevated levels of cortisol, other things happen when you have insomnia and sleep deprivation, but we don't usually key that right into one of the main causes of an elevated blood pressure. So I do like the strong maybe. Let's see what else we got here. Will these symptoms improve or her insomnia improve as she enters menopause? Uh, no. Ted, any, any thoughts on that one? No, very unlikely. Okay. They're, they're likely to worsen as she enters menopause. And not only that, you know, everyone, that let's talk about obstructive sleep apnea. You know, if you were to tell me in broad strokes, you know, who's going to be at risk for OSA more? Is it going to be young or old? The answer is old. Is it males or females? You know, most of us would say men. But you know what? Right when uh, women enter menopause, it's almost a even playing field that they're going to have a much, much higher risk. So definitely if it was OSA, it may worsen as she enters menopause, but definitely not her insomnia. Her insomnia will not improve. So I definitely know B is going to be wrong. C, they are likely perpetuated by her behaviors and beliefs. Ted, any input on that one? I would say, yes, they, they likely are. Um, you know, we haven't really talked to her about her behaviors and beliefs, but that does very definitely impact insomnia. I, I'm liking that, but that one's like shining at me. But let's read the other one, the last one. They're equally common in middle-aged men. So this is one of those spicy questions where we talk about, you know, who exactly is going to have more insomnia, whether it's going to be prevalence or incidence. And, you know, and I think the playing field is becoming much more equal as we speak. But when we talk about this question, that it seems that females should have a little bit more of the insomnia than in, in claims at the time when we talk about it. But I would say with all these choices being put together, if I had to pick the best one, 
I would definitely choose choice C, which is going to be a very specific type of insomnia that we're going to be talking about. And choice C is what we call psychophysiologic insomnia. So insomnia that actually is worsened by the things that you're doing to try to make it feel better. So let's dive into this. So when we talk about insomnia in itself, when I give you the definition, everyone, it seems like we all have insomnia. It's difficulty initiating sleep, maintaining sleep, waking up too early. And of course, it's going to be non-restorative and it's going to be poor quality sleep. But two of the things I think are going to be very important when we talk about the definition is, number one, do you have adequate time to sleep to begin with? Meaning that when someone has sleep issues, one of the first things you want to know is, are you getting the right quantity of sleep? And that quantity is going to be, for most adults, somewhere between seven to eight hours of sleep, according to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Now, age really factors into this. So when the younger you are, you're definitely going to need more sleep than just seven to eight hours. So that's number one. And number two, I wanted to mention, well, how are you functioning during the day? Because when we talk about certain individuals who say, you know what, Dr. Raj, I'm not sleeping seven, eight hours, I'm six to seven, but, you know, I have three Pulitzer Prize board winners, I have a gold medal in the Olympics, I have accomplished all these things. You know, how you function in a day is really going to influence how aggressive you are to diagnose and treat your insomnia. So definitely figuring out daytime functioning, making sure they have adequate time to sleep. But the definition is very, very broad, you know, when we talk about initiating, maintaining, waking up too early. So, of course, many of us have probably had insomnia, which we probably did. In the sleep medicine fellowship realm, you know, there are actually specific causes of insomnia. And we'll talk about these, the ones I think are going to be very relevant for your board exams, whether it's going to be a USMLE, an internal medicine board exam, a family practice board exam. Let me give you some specific causes. One broad type is called adjustment insomnia. And this is something like in the vignette, I remember the woman in the vignette, the husband had emergent cardiac surgery. So of course, you know, when you have an acute stressor, and this could be some kind of acute illness in a loved one or yourself, a, a change in the sleeping environment, a divorce, a marriage, I mean, all these things can cause adjustment insomnia. I'm sure many people listening to this have had adjustment insomnia. And in theory, when this stressor, you know, improves or goes away, then your symptoms should improve in theory. Another type is called this, you know, per se, idiopathic insomnia, chronic insomnia. And if you go back to this vignette, or at least if you can remember, there was one line that talked about she didn't have it in her early childhood. And why do many writers put that in vignettes is because there are some people that have just really, really tough insomnia, meaning that, you know, they've been on, every time you mention a medication, oh, been on that, oh, try that, oh, been on both those, you know, and there's really nothing you can say before you even give a suggestion, they already turned it down, that they could have a chronic form of insomnia that happens lifelong. And these are some of the hardest, most challenging patients to have. But, you know, this is something that I wanted to mention. And could there be a genetic predisposition? That's a hot topic when we talk about sleep medicine. But it's always important to ask about childhood insomnia when you're talking to your patients for the first time to see how long this has occurred. Now, another type is something that we could talk about for another three podcasts, which is a broad thing called inadequate sleep hygiene. You know, and I think that once again, that just because you improve the sleep hygiene doesn't mean you're not going to have insomnia ever. It's going to cure it. But this is something that you need to have the core foundation, some core things to make sure that you're going to be in the right track to help people out who do have insomnia. 
So what are these? These are going to be some of these behaviors, some of the things that we do, things that jump to mind. Number one is technology. And I always would say technology is always going to be a double-edged sword, especially right now with what we're going on through with this pandemic and a lot of people having Zoom chats all the time. It's funny because when we talk about the sleep hygiene, I used to say, take the television out of the bedroom. And, you know, I don't think many people have a classic television anymore. You know, I think what we're really talking about is cell phones, you know, or smartphones and iPads and Kindles. And the big thing is, is that I'm not worried about you looking at one thing on your iPhone, but then that leads to watching Netflix. That leads to looking at emails and getting stressed and who actually is mentioning me on Facebook. And I always joke around with students that many of us have this Pavlovian response to be in arm's distance to our cell phone just to check it because of all the social media things that are going out there. And Ted, can you see this screen or this my PowerPoint slide on this one? Absolutely. Oh, let me let me ask you a question. So I always joke that I always feel like I'm getting getting older. And so when I do this as a live lecture, I put this picture that you see of this young girl with her hands up against a television screen. I ask the students, what movie is this? Ted, I'm going to put you on the spot, buddy. What movie is this? Well, I know what movie that is. And the same thing happens to me with my residents when I make what I think are pop culture references and find out that they haven't seen the movies that I have. That's Poltergeist. <laughs> You're awesome. And you know what? For those listening, you know, when I, when I do this, I did this lecture literally maybe about a month ago and someone raised their hand. It was so passionate about the answer and said, that's the ring. And I'm like, the ring? No, this is Poltergeist. But there you go. So, you know, I think a big thing is that people ask, well, what do I do with my cell phone, Dr. Raj? And of course, the, the answer is, you know, we all need an alarm, but put it not right next to the bed because we talk about hitting snooze buttons. But the answer is, is that no one has that. Well, most people don't have that traditional alarm clock anymore. We use our, our phone. And another thing is about clock watching. So when we talk about, you know, insomnia, the reason why you don't want to clock watch is, for example, you know, if we need to, I need to wake up at least most days around six in the morning. But what always happens is around 5.35, you know, I, my, I just wake up naturally. I look at the clock and I'm like, oh boy, 5.35, why even go back to bed? I'm going to have a horrible day now, da, da, da. So the thing is, is that if you don't see what time it is, you're, you're not going to, you know, set yourself up for failure, blaming everything on your lack of sleep or realizing before you wake up. And let me just say this now, because I know I just kind of breezed over, why don't you want to hit the snooze button? You know, the answer is in a medical sense, you want to wake up in the lighter stages of sleep. So when we talk about sleep in general, everyone, sleep has two broad stages, non-REM and REM. And non-REM has three stages, N1, N2, and N3, and stands for non-REM. So, you know, the reason being is that you want to wake up in the latter stages. So if you, your alarm wakes, uh, sounds off, you wake up and so happens that you're in a lighter stage of sleep, such as N1 and N2, get out of bed, start your day. If possible, get exposed to bright sunlight right away, if possible. But let's say you hit that snooze button, you know, and when you wake up again, you never know what stage of sleep you may wake up in. Maybe it could be REM because as you go closer to the morning, you do have more chances of waking up in REM which is why when you wake up in the deeper stages of sleep, you feel something we call sleep inertia, where it's just really hard to get the ball rolling. So don't hit that snooze button. And I'm not a big fan of the clock watching. 
And people always ask about, you know, people say, of course, don't eat late at night. And I think that's the answer for many reasons. Number one, gastroesophageal reflux. When you get reflux, multiple arousals and awakens during the night. In another sense, you know what I mean? If you're going to drink later at night, of course, more trips to the bathroom. But let me just say this. When we talk about people with insomnia, I mean, if you were to ask me, do they tend to have lower body mass index or a higher body mass index? The answer is they tend to be a little heavier than you think. People ask why. Well, number one, let's talk about physiology. I mean, there are many hormones that influences our weight, but two of them that you should know for your board exams are leptin and ghrelin. When we think of leptin, leptin begins with the letter L. L stands for lose weight. And when you're sleeping, you get lots of leptin. G stands for ghrelin, and G stands for gain weight. And when you're not sleeping, you're going to get lots and lots and lots of ghrelin. So you can imagine in patients with insomnia, you're going to get that dysregulation. That's going to be one thing that definitely adds to having some weight gain. Not to mention on top of that are behaviors, because you know that if you're going to be up late night with insomnia, that when you snack, are you going to be grabbing those celery sticks and avion water? The answer is no. What are you going to be grabbing? You're going to grab those choco tacos. You're going to grab those cool ranch Doritos, and that's going to factor in also. So all these things balanced together is going to be what we call getting good sleep hygiene, which is going to be you want to transition into sleep. And what does that mean is that you want the room to be dark, to be quiet, to be on the cooler side. So all those things are going to be what we call having good sleep hygiene. So many of us have insomnia just based upon that. So technology, once again, you can't see it, but I'm going to tell you what's on my slide is that it's amazing when I talk about people who influence our sleep. I mentioned about sayings like the early bird gets the worm. Many people watching this are going to be entrepreneurs if you're not entrepreneurs already. And, you know, I feel when you're at that level, you have to be a good role model, you know? So things that I always mention, people like Elon Musk, that one of his big things was, wasn't really a big fan of sleep, really was kind of encouraging sleeping on the factory floor to get things done. I love his passion, but people really look up to him. And he's someone that, you know, it would be nice. He was a, a bigger advocate of promoting better sleep. And my slide over here was talking about the CEO for Netflix. It's uh, Reed Hastings. And it's his quote, I mean, it's correct, but it, you know, of course, it's like, oh, shocking that Netflix's biggest competitor is sleep. Well, I guess it's right. He does have good shows, but, you know, it, it, once again, it's putting sleep as the second and third tier thing to worry about when we talk about pillars of health, when it should be a really important thing. And this was kind of interesting because this was a study done in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine that said that, yeah, binge watching can cause insomnia. And I'm sure many of you are like, well, no, duh, but they did a study to prove it. And one of the interesting things is, Ted, do you have Netflix? Yes, yes, no? Yes. Okay, so I'm going to ask you, when a episode show is done, how many seconds do you have until the next show starts? Oh, I'd have to look at it, but it's not much. It's like six seconds or so. Dude, it's five seconds. You, me and you, we, we're a good team here. So the thing is, it's like you're, you're tricked to actually watch more. And it's amazing. They, they kind of did studies comparing men and women and everything. And the average is we're watching two to three episodes, you know, in a row, we're binge watching. So of course, and you know, 
what it happens is you get cognitively aroused. And, you know, some of the shows I love, Stranger Things is amazing, you know. And you're not going to go to bed with these cliffhangers where is Eleven going to find her Lego waffles? I don't know, you know. So, you know, of course we notice this, but there are studies, and this is going to be part of that sleep hygiene that we're talking about. So this one always puts a smile on my face as a clinician. There's something called paradoxical insomnia, otherwise known as sleep misinterpretation. And the way I summarize it for a podcast is that this is the patient that comes up to me and says, Dr. Raj, yes, I haven't slept in two years. And I'll be like, no, you'd be dead. But, you know, this is what we call sleep misinterpretation. And this is why if you were to ask me, what is probably my go-to thing to do when someone comes up to me with a sleep issue, likely sleep deprivation or insomnia, that it's very important to get sleep logs or sleep journals. And it's kind of funny because, you know, they're not exactly the same thing. And, you know, when I think of talking to my patients, I usually call it a sleep log because that's what I want. When did you go to bed? When did you wake up? But a journal kind of reminds me of like Hello Kitty journals that little, you know, kids write stuff in and tonight journal. So I usually call it a sleep log. But more importantly, there's something called actigraphy that we're going to be talking about shortly, which is actually a technology that really tells the truth behind your sleep and takes out the chance that I may getting the wrong information from a sleep log or journal. So we'll talk more about parasleep misinterpretation in one second. All right, everyone, that is it for today. Join us next time on the Inside the Boards podcast for even more high-yield learning.